This is Heidi Matthews On Demand, the podcast that is R-rated, but is plausible deniability. HMOD is a barely legal podcast about sex, culture, politics, and law hosted by me, Osgood Hall Law School professor Heidi Matthews, and produced by my new American husband, David Slavic. I've called this episode the good old days because it draws on ideas about how law and society were once properly organized, but somehow now find themselves in a state of crisis. In part one, I talked to Alice Ristroff, professor of law at Brooklyn Law School, about how the mass incarceration crisis in the United States depends on a fictional past where the criminal law was thought to be functioning well. In part two, I speak with super law student Heather Donkers about how law students today are reaching an economic breaking point that is having dire consequences for access to justice. Episode one of HMOD with Harvard Law School professor Mark Tushnet has already had over 500 listens. So keep your ears open for episode three, which will feature the fabulous and extremely extra trans feminine law student and activist Florence Ashley. Here is my interview with Alice Ristroff. Today, I'm chatting with Alice Ristroff, who's a professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. Uh, We chat about mass incarceration, intellectual history, Me Too, feminism, and Kamala Harris. Alice teaches and writes in criminal law and procedure, constitutional law, and political theory. Her recent work examines laws that regulate state violence, focusing especially on the law's distribution of risks of physical harm. She's also been studying ways in which the law suppresses, tolerates, or even facilitates various forms of resistance to criminal justice institutions. Professor Riss Stroff received her JD and PhD in political theory from Harvard University. Great. So um, this afternoon, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Professor Alice Ristroff, who is teaching criminal law at Brooklyn Law School. And she's just given a fantastic lecture um, at Osgood Hall Law School on her uh, working paper called An Intellectual History of Mass Incarceration. And I think what I wanted to do today was sort of try to unpack Um, in the time that we have, some of the core ideas of your paper that uh, you think are most important, both from the point of view of helping the general public to sort of understand why intellectual history is even important when we're looking at kind of the normative and really stark and pressing political questions relating to the criminal justice system today, um, and, and to sort of unpack for us sort of, yeah, why intellectual history matters, um, and and maybe uh, a line or two about um, the thesis of the paper. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm excited to talk about paper a little bit more. Um, I have to say that I uh, kind of struggled and went back and forth with um, the uh, possibility of calling my paper an intellectual history of mass incarceration. The project has gone through a number of titles, um, but one of the reasons I didn't like uh, the term intellectual history is that it seemed uh, too fancy and highbrow and, um, uh, you know, maybe kind of furthering a problem in which uh, academic uh, elites construct one story about criminal law, and it's very different from um, criminal law that's hap- actually happening on the ground. Um, but let me try to say what uh, what I think I mean by it. Um, 
I just um, want to try to identify um, the ideas we have about criminal law. And when I say we, um, in this paper, I'm speaking a lot about legal professionals, um, both within the legal academy, law professors and students, um, but then also people who go on to practice. Um, and um, I want that those, those individuals, by the way, are sort of the focus of the paper, but I also want to think about ideas about criminal law that exists in public discourse more broadly among people who aren't necessarily legal professionals. Um, so I wanted to try to figure out the expectations people have of criminal law, the hopes they have for it, the way that they think that it works, and see if there aren't, um, it seems to me that there might be some um, aspects of the very way we think about criminal law that contribute to our practices and, um, you know, the policies we adopt and the um, enforcement measures we undertake. Um, so that's that's kind of what I mean by um, intellectual history. I think uh, not necessarily uh, high philosophy, but um, just a connection between conceptual ideas and and practices. Great. Um, and in terms of uh, just going through the uh, meat of the paper really briefly, you talked about, I believe, four different sorts of exceptionalism with respect to the criminal law. Um, and so one, I've listed them here, we've got historical exceptionalism, functional or purposive exceptionalism, burdens exceptionalism, subject matter exceptionalism, and operational exceptionalism. And I think it was my understanding, at least, of the paper that you were trying to sort of um, unseat some of the received wisdom within the criminal law sort of professoriate and practitioner universe, but then also just within what the general public thinks about um, when it comes to dealing with uh, really difficult um, public safety questions, for example. And so the idea that as I read it, especially with respect to the subject matter exceptions, what struck me so 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 sharply was this idea, you want it to, to upset the idea that there are some sorts of harm, some sorts of activities. And so let's just throw one out there because it's something that I happen to be working on at, at present. So I do a lot of work around sexual assault, sexual violence, um, and I've been highly critical of the Me Too movement, which came up at the end of your talk, <laughs> right. so I was glad to see that. And so that would be an example, right? It's very difficult for us to think of a universe in which subject matter exceptionalism would would play less of an explanatory or normative role when we're thinking about why we have the criminal justice system, why we prosecute sort of certain sorts of crime. And I think it is difficult and, and, and to, to think of sexual assault being an example that I'd love to hear you speak more about. It's hard for us to think of a universe in which it sexual assault was not a crime. And and I don't and I don't say that because it would be you know so in other words I and I maybe I'm reading too much into your position but I myself have always been extremely skeptical of the need to even have like the criminal law as we currently understand it as a way of solving you know social justice or even organizational or whatever problems in society and so I'm just wondering if if we could unpack sort of what's involved maybe in the thought experiment of, of you know, entertaining the idea that maybe the criminal law is just not necessary to do many of the things that it's doing, most of which, as you note in your paper, are not actually about violent crime, but even including the things that may be about violent crime. Does that make sense? Yeah, so okay. a couple of interesting um, ideas that I want to pursue. So first of all, on subject matter exceptionalism, I wanted to suggest that the sort of the descriptive claim, the empirical claim that we have what we use the criminal law for are a kind of activities that are particularly reprehensible um, and harmful and you know tear at the very bonds of human society. 
Um, I want to say that empirically and descriptively, that claim is just untrue. It's untrue right now. It's always been untrue. We have always used the criminal law to do things like pub- punish public drunkenness or um, uh, uh, leaving your sheep uh, unchained wandering the streets. I think this is one of the examples <laughs> in the paper from uh, an early American crime. So the you know the idea that criminal law is really about murder, rape, robbery, and uh, is sort of defined by its subject matter, by this exceptional narrow subject matter. That's just empirically untrue. Um, and I did want to establish that. But then you raised sort of another question about whether uh, whether there is, you know, a widely held view and maybe a defensible view that certain kinds of conduct, whether or not they're the only things that criminal law addresses, whether they should necessarily be addressed in the criminal law, like sexual assault. And I would, I guess, throw out a couple of ideas. I mean, first of all, one interesting, you know, question that arises in my mind from from hearing what you've just said is, is that it's hard to imagine a world in which sexual assault is not a crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes me think, well, what, what do we mean by saying that sexual assault is a crime? Because I would say that for um, a lot of uh, human history, sexual assault was not a crime in the sense that it was not necessarily identified as something to be prosecuted and punished. It is the case that, uh, you know, look, you know, at, 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 you know, that rape or sexual assault, you know, that versions of this kind of activity have been named as criminal by societies for a very long time. But in terms of actual enforcement practices, um, I, you know, I think that there have been large, long stretches of human history when most many forms of sexual violence were not addressed by the criminal justice system. I don't want to endorse that outcome or say that, you know, things were so wonderful then. I just want to say it's not an unthinkable world. It's not something that has uh, um, ever existed. And then I think sort of we get into more practical questions about the empirical effects of saying, okay, sexual assault is a crime and we are going to enforce it. Uh, enforce it. Uh, you know, I think there is mixed data on whether increased criminalization, mm-hmm. increased enforcement efforts have mm-hmm. um, resolved or reduced problems of sexual violence in the way that people had hoped. Right. That's so striking and helpful. And I, and I want to just riff off that for a brief moment to say that I've, so my most recent work is, I actually edited the, had the horrible process of editing the final proofs last night. And now I'm dealing with the trauma of having released it, but basically (laughs) was working, working in the field of international criminal law and really doing, um, I, I mean, part in part in intellectual history to look at the way in which the project of international criminal law really got going post-1990 in large part uh, as a feminist law reform project focused on making criminal and in an international sense what feminists perceived as being having been heretofore before 1990 in other words insufficiently criminal and so actually this idea of making sure that we deal with sexual violence here, wartime sexual violence through the mode of the criminal law has actually been in large part responsible for building this whole new edifice of criminal law internationally for everything from Mm -hmm. the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia all the way through to the International Criminal Court today. And so that's just an aside, but I think think everything you said sort of dovetailed nicely with what I've been thinking about recently. While Kamala Harris was Attorney General um, in California, she made this um, speech about truancy and really using the sort of threatening (laughs) 
arm of the criminal law in order to prosecute parents who are allowing their uh, you know, children not to attend school for various reasons that obviously have to do with um, those parents maybe being not on the um, in the upper echelons of society, let's say. But then for, on the progressive side of things now, in the lead up to the Democratic primaries, everybody has freaked out. And there's been, a, you know, the sense that Kamala was a cop has been sort of a refrain that we've heard on the left or in progressive circles for a long time. And I think this video really ser- is serving to prop up that attitude that she's just a cop. And I think what was really striking about your paper was this um, really forcing us to look at the long history of the way in which the criminal law has been used by those in power who are otherwise thought of as progressives, right? Mm -hmm. Or as Democrats or whatever, actually turning to various regulatory arms um, um, of the law, uh, criminalizing them, and then sort of doing their social projects in that vein. And that truancy is just one example of something that's been around for a long time and has sort of been deployed in that, um, you know, probably quite objectionable fashion for quite some time. And I just wonder if you could reflect on that. In other words, it might be the case, and I'm just wondering if you agree with me, but I'm, I'm sort of intuitively thinking that it might be the case that, yeah, Kamala Harris might, might, might be a cop and not great, and maybe we don't want her, but she's not the only one. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah. No, it's so interesting that you asked that because I haven't seen the particular truancy video that you mentioned, but I'm definitely um, well aware of concerns about um, Kamala Harris. Uh, she was, you know, as there was kind of a lead up to, to, the, to the announcement of her run, um, definitely among criminal law circles and especially activists and kind of grassroots um, grassroots uh, um, advocates for criminal justice reform. Um, I, I have definitely heard many concerns raised about her, and um, I think that uh, I think that uh, it is. Absolutely true that um, the kind of resort to criminal law um, has been made both in good faith by people who think that they're going to solve some problem by criminalizing something that wasn't criminal before, and also strategically by people who, um, by political leaders who knew that sort of by uh, exacerbating or stoking up fear about crime, they could, you know, sort of get a lever um, through which to exercise power. Um, I don't think any of that is is unique to Kamala Harris. And I guess I would say, um, uh, you know, about prosecutors generally, who I'm, you know, I've got some criticisms of them in this paper, but I do often, um, look, I often uh, look at criminal defendants and think there, but for the grace of God, go I, mm-hmm. that, you know, I sort of had a, a number of fortunate uh, um, uh, uh, experiences um, and privileges that have kept me away from the arm of, of criminal law so far, knock on wood. Um but I also look at criminal prosecutors and think there, but for the grace of God, go I, that um, I think that it is entirely understandable and reasonable that someone who was committed to justice and wanted to do um, work and was interested in criminal law um, might become a prosecutor, um, in part because of the kind of ideological frameworks that I'm uh, talking about in this um, in this paper. So, you know, I don't think sort of uh, it, when we identify uh, kind of an aggressive criminalization mm-hmm. instinct, I don't think it's unique to yeah. any one individual. Right. That's so helpful. So unfortunately, we are out of time. You've got to get a flight back to New York. We are just so grateful that you took a few moments to speak with us today. Um, and maybe we'll hear from you again soon on the pod. Okay. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank you. Thank you so much.
An overwhelming percentage of Canadian law students face crushing debt when they graduate. The high and rising price of a legal education is compounded by rising fees associated with articling, which is the apprentice-like period that law students are required to complete before becoming licensed lawyers. There's also a shortage of articling positions vis-a-vis the number of students graduating yearly with their JD degrees. The debt crisis being faced today by Canadian law students is part of a much larger global crisis in access to justice and access to the legal profession. For over a decade now, law students and legal scholars have been talking about the large-scale crisis in legal education. The number of law schools in the United States, and to a lesser degree in Canada and the United Kingdom, has been expanding while the likelihood of obtaining a law job that will allow loan repayment in some kind of reasonable time frame has been declining. American law schools have faced fraud charges for misrepresenting their post-graduation employment statistics, and law graduates are feeling increasingly coerced into accepting jobs in the private sector where but for their debt load, they would have worked in the public interest. To make matters worse, across jurisdictions, governments are imposing harsh austerity policies that are drastically reducing access to legal aid services. My discussion with super student Heather Donkers is an excellent description of how young legal professionals, like most other young people living under neoliberal capitalism, face a disproportionate burden of debt, precarity, and stress. Heather is a 3L student at Osgoode Hall, where she wears multiple hats. Among other things, Heather works at Roby Show's criminal litigation law firm in Toronto, serves on the board of directors of the Ontario Bar Association, and is president of the Law Students Society of Ontario. Next year, she will be articling at the Ministry of the Attorney General here in Toronto. In her capacity as president of the LSSO, Heather single-handedly ran a survey of Ontario law students on the economic challenges they face as a direct result of their legal education, and recently produced the excellent report titled Just or Bust, Results of the 2018 Survey of Ontario Law Students' Tuition, Debt, and Student Financial Aid Experiences. As a follow-up to this excellent and detailed report, The LSSO has just released a new survey targeted at recent law school graduates, articling students, LPP students, and lawyers working up to 10 years of call. If you fall into any of these categories, please take a few minutes to complete the survey. Here is my interview with Heather Donkers. But uh, I want to just ask sort of why and how you came to this project as a beginning. Sure. Um, So first, thanks for having me. (laughs) Um, So I am a first generation university student and um, that has uh, come with a number of challenges, but also given me a platform to uh, advance uh, these kinds of issues. So um, I became involved with the Law Student Society of Ontario as their equity officer in my second year of law school. And uh, together we intervened at the Supreme Court in the Trinity Western University case. And in that case, we got a lot of good language about um, the public interest role of the legal profession. And it kind of inspired me to um, uh, rejig a project that was previously done by the LSSO in 2014, which was uh, their just or bust survey on law school tuition and debt. 
And so, like I said, it had been done five years ago and it needed an update. Um, I knew that this issue was still looming large in law schools because it affects me directly and because it affects all of my peers. And so I wanted to just get an update on that data, see if things had gotten better, worse, had stayed the same and surprise, surprise, it's gotten a little bit worse. So, um, so that's the project and that's what brought me, uh, to start it. So Heather, how many students did you actually speak to or receive um, input from for the purposes of this updated report? So for this survey, we received 697 responses across the province. Um, we had a slightly less uh, turnout rate from the University of Ottawa and the University of Windsor, simply due to a miscommunication in trying to disseminate the survey. Um, but that's just part and parcel, I think, of um, this being in some ways a uh, one woman job, <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm a law student and I have part-time jobs and I'm trying to do this on, on top of all of that. So, uh, you know, I, I took on a lot of the dissemination myself on my Twitter and, you know, online and social media platforms. And so, um, we got as many as we could, and that was close to 700, which in my mind is a pretty good, um, turnout, but, uh, we're hoping, um, to keep this conversation going and have there be a continuous update to this survey um, in future years, so long as, um, you know, the issue is still prevalent, which it seems it will be. So Right, right. And so how many law students are there in Ontario? It seems like getting 700 people to respond is actually really good turnout. We struggle with student surveys all the time. Yeah, it's, it's quite good. And my understanding is there's about 4,000, okay. and so just slightly less than one quarter of that. And so and we got a, a good response from um, students in different years of law school. They were um, quite evenly distributed across uh, a first year, second year, and third year. Um, and so, yeah, so we were really proud of the uh, um, the amount of uptake that we got. Uh Twitter, like I said, was a big part piece of that. Um, you know, I use that as a platform to get in contact with lawyers and law students across the province. And so that really helped. And uh, it seems also that people are, um, students in particular, are very interested in this issue. Um, like you said at the beginning, it's been, uh, you know, an issue that's been on people's minds for even close to a decade now. But um, I think there's been a lot more uptake in recent years um, of this issue of accessibility of the legal profession. And so Mm -hmm. it was a good institutional moment, I think, for us to do this survey. And there was a lot of buy-in from students. Absolutely. And clearly a really uh, key political moment as well, in particular in the province of Ontario. And maybe we could just spend a moment um, spelling that out for people who might not be uh, as up-to-date on the realities (laughs) of the uh, Doug Ford government's approach to higher education in the province. So maybe you could just... Yeah, absolutely. So it was actually after we had closed the survey and when I was writing the report, um, it was very close to the end, actually. So about halfway through January and uh, Doug Ford announced on behalf of his government that uh, there would be a 10% cut to tuition. Um, and while that all seemed fine and good, I knew that it was kind of a good, too good to be true moment. Um, and I think it was a tactic for him to have announced it that way, because then several days later, when some of the hype had died down, we found out that in fact, the tuition cut was coming from the university's bottom line and college's bottom line, as opposed to being supplanted by um, government funds. And so that just means that um, student services are going to be cut. Um, and we don't really know even what the other reverberations will be, but I'm sure there will be plenty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was other elements to it, like cutting um, grants for low income students, um, as well as um, uh, getting rid of, or my understanding is that it's more, uh, you know, um, well, I would say that the language is getting rid of the six-month grace period on paying back OSAP loans, mm-hmm. which was essentially that up until this point, we had six months after graduation to start paying our um, our loans back. Um, I think it's just that uh, 
now we'll just have to pay, uh, we will have to pay interest in those six months and not necessarily all the loans, but that still is a huge hit for students um, like myself who are graduating with upwards of $200,000 in debt. Um, so we don't know exactly when that will come into force, but, um, and whether it'll affect students like me, but it will certainly be affecting students mm-hmm. in the future and just add one additional barrier to law school in the province. Absolutely. And a totally uh, confusing policy choice from the conservatives' perspective as well. I mean, what has been, not that you can speak on behalf of all students, but given your position and your visibility in the law school, what has the general student reaction been to this uh, Ford's policy announcement? It's been quite um, quite large, actually, the student reaction. There were a couple rallies organized at Queen's Park. Um, Students are really upset about this and rightly so um it just kind of feels it feels just regressive Mm -hmm. and that you know we already are facing all these challenges which is the impetus for why i had this project and yet now it's just another step backwards in the wrong direction um so students are becoming quite vocal about this and which you know gives more fuel to my fire of of the projects that i'm working on because it just it just um you know it, it shows me that it's, it's not all for not, like the projects that I'm working on are not right. for not. <laughs> um, and that, you know, it's important that people are standing up to the government, standing up to the law schools and saying, you know, it's unacceptable to have tuition rates at this mm-hmm. level. And in fact, I've used the word unconscionable in the, in the past. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, it just means that uh, there, are, there are not only barriers for people who are already in law school, who are now going to be graduating with insane amounts of debt, but also for the front end um, consideration, which is students who are not even applying because they know um, about, you know, about law school tuition. They know now about this um, Ford uh, tuition cut and, you know, the, the grace period being uh, going away and all of those things. And so I think it just really discourages um people from di- diverse groups, from um, first-generation backgrounds to pursue a legal education. And I think that's really sad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's just another example of sort of, for lack of a better word, how neoliberalism is sort of downloading all of the costs of the changing political economy that we live in mm-hmm. onto the shoulders of what are really mostly young people, certainly students, and certainly young members of the profession. And that these costs sort of reverberate on multiple levels. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, you know, tacked on to the whole... Um, uh, the sex education thing and all, all of these things that this government have done to kind of uh, like regressive in educational policies. Mm-hmm. It, it's just, it's really disheartening, but I think students it, of all people will be the ones to, you know, try and push it in the opposite direction and push back mm-hmm. against it. Hopefully so, but mm-hmm. yeah. So you mentioned your own experience as being a first generation law student. And I yeah. thought that it was really interesting that came out um, at several points in the report, yeah. both as relevant to several of your questions and then yeah. also as a really um, important, as it turns out, you rightly uh, predicted, indicator mm-hmm. of the sorts of barriers um, that that category in particular of students um, actually faces long before they even get to law school. Could mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the number that stands out in my head right now without looking at it is, um, you know, the number of, or the average debt that was carried by first generation university and law students as compared to students who had both parents or one parent having completed a post-secondary education. And the numbers were quite disparate. I think it was in the range of $30,000 of difference. Um, I think the average was 72000 that first-generation university students held um, versus 42000 or something of the like um, that students who whose parents have a post-secondary education carried. And so that that in itself was just a jarring number to, to think about and kind of parse through what the barriers for first-generation university students might be. And I think it's, it's partly, you know, in some ways... Um, 
related to affordability of law school and, and mm-hmm. to be the ability to access based on um, whether your parents are able to contribute to uh, to your tuition either in undergrad or in law school. Um, but also, you know, uh, it's not just it's not just about the accessibility of law school um, financially, but about the kinds of barriers that students may face in terms of their their impressions of what law school is. And so, you know, for instance, for me, I had never met a lawyer until I had the unfortunate experience of having to go through the criminal justice system and meeting a lawyer in that context. But I had no idea what the law was like, what it was like to study law, to be a lawyer, um, until I, you know, kind of took the plunge and just decided to apply anyways. And I, I did I did feel like a fish out of water at the beginning of law school. You know, I didn't, I would look around to my colleagues, many of whom had parents or who were lawyers or judges and family members who were involved in the legal profession in some way, or just parents who, um, you know, and family members who were in uh, worked in a professional capacity and mm-hmm. um, whatever that may be. But, you know, it does kind of um, make you realize how uh, just how many, uh, you know, barriers there might be in terms of uh, fitting in even as simple as that and just feeling like um, you don't know what you're doing and, you know, those kinds of things. So I wanted the report to highlight that it wasn't just about the numbers, but also just about kind of the environment that we're in. And that and that doesn't just go for first-generation law students, but for other groups of people as well. You know, the law schools have, I would say, improved dramatically over the years in terms of their um, diversity and, and how representative they are of Canadian society. Obviously, we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And, um, you know, law schools are still fill, filled with people who's... Um, uh, who have lawyers in the family whose parents are able to afford to put them through law school, who are white and who are um, rich and who have all these these privileges that, um, you know, we we need a diversity of perspectives. And so while it's important to have those people in law school seats, it's equally as important, um, if not more, to encourage uh, people of other groups to come into law school. And I do want to say, you know, tuition isn't the only barrier to that. It's not that if we were to lower tuition that all of a sudden – um, you know, we have all, people of all diverse groups in uh, law school seats. It's more complex than that. Um, but it would be a, the, one of the first steps, I think, towards kind of encouraging first generation students and other students to pursue a legal education. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, so I think the idea there is that the financial barriers are indicators of barriers that exist in many other yeah. um, areas and that actually law school and legal profession has a very specific culture. Absolutely. There's a culture associated with how you talk, the words you use, the cadence of your speech, uh, sort of what you wear to an interview. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, and 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 uh, and all so much of that um, is really based around this issue of, of class, right? And yeah. it's you know it's always frustrating to me that Osgood does a great job um, at a whole bunch of things around diversity uh, and inclusion, including in the admissions process. But it seemed, and this is not a critique of Osgood, it's just something. It's very very difficult to mark for class itself yeah. um, without basically just turning to the numbers. And I think that you've done a great job of turning it to the numbers to show us actually the way in which they reflect much, much deeper and more concerning cultural issues. And so if we don't at least start at this level of, of tuition, we're going to end up just replicating the same um, exclusive uh, sort of uh, dominant legal and professional culture that is problematic for all sorts of, of, of members of society. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Osgood, um, 
I came to Osgood for a very specific reason, and that was, um, you know, former Dean Sawson, now Justice Sawson, um, championed this uh, income contingent loan program that is unique to Osgood in the province. And it basically allows students um, who can't afford tuition to pay back their tuition contingent on their income after they graduate. And so, you know, I still have to have a line of credit. I still have to take out OSAP loans. But that in itself was the only reason why I was able to access law school. And in fact, it's only Osgood that offers that program and only to a very select few students. And so it's the start of um, a, it, it's it's a start towards getting students like me into law school. Um, but we need to do much more than that in order to kind of encourage, um, like I said, the uh, students from diverse groups being able to access law school. Mm-hmm. But you're right. And it's, it's a complex problem. It's not just being able to get students into those seats, but you know, um, I have this great anecdote that I was written about before uh, during the on-campus interview process in my second year when, uh, you know, I showed up wearing this bright blue blouse for my interviews and I stuck out like a sore thumb. Absolutely. Like there was n- there was no other person wearing color in that room out of the hundreds of students that were there. Everyone was in gray, black and white. And it was like I had missed a memo that I didn't know I had missed. Right. Um, and it was just it was actually quite upsetting at the time because I thought, oh my gosh, well, you know, if I'm going to go interview at these these big firms, which actually luckily I wasn't because I wasn't super interested in that route. I was interviewing with the government. But, you know, even then I thought, what am I going to do? I'm going to go into these interviews immediately after someone who wore all black and right before someone else who wears all black. <laughs> and I'm going to just look like I don't know what I'm doing. And it sounds like a small thing, but it was very much so um, what, like a moment for me where I realized that there's absolutely a culture in law school that is very particular and that um, privilege is a very particular uh, group of people. And if you don't fit into that for some reason, um, then it's a uh, it's a, it can be it can be um, quite, quite disheartening and it can be uh, disillusioning about what the profession looks like. Mm-hmm. And so now I've kind of, you know, I've tried to flip that on its head a little bit by embracing that uniqueness and saying, you know, uh, so that that uh, story about me with the blue blouse was written about by um, President Magazine, and I got a really good kind of uh, response to that when it was shared on Twitter. People saying, you know, you know, you should you should wear color and you should stand out. It should be about that. And it sounds cheesy, but really, it, it was um, kind of a moment in which I realized that I had something unique I can contribute um, to the law school culture and something unique I could contribute to the profession by virtue of um, my background and by virtue of the different um, experiences that I've had. And I would hope that other students would do the same and say, you know, if we want to change the culture, then maybe it's not so much about fitting into what already exists, but rather standing out from it. Oh, wow. That's so, that's so, uh, that's so beautifully put. And I do, I have to say, like, as your professor, but as somebody who just observes you operating in the classroom, but also outside of the classroom, you, you know, it's clear to me that you're a person that refuses to conform. And that the way I also consider myself in that vein, but the way that you approach the world, and even what it means to be uh, trying to do justice, what I mean, as ridiculous as a word as that is, you know, Mm -hmm. it is here, what it is why we're here in some sense, and your refusal to conform, you know, has a substantive impact um, on the kind of work that you're going to end up doing. And I think, I think, um, so Heather, there are, most students are coming out of law school with a huge amount of debt. And I think it might be fair to say, based on the work you've done in this report, that one of the really negative um, and most concerning aspects of this law school tuition crisis is that even within what some might be considered to be the ruling classes or high, higher echelons of society in terms of power and access to wealth, the fact that schools are charging so much money 
uh, actually means the disparity between the most precarious in society and the wealthiest is reproduced even in, at the level of law school and um, the legal profession. And so what have some of the students who don't face the levels of debt that some students do face actually having, what are they, what do those students have to say to you about the findings in this report? Well, it's interesting, and I'll start by saying that there was a lot uh, of students in the report who, or in the survey who identified as not having had any debt, who recognized nonetheless that there was a huge problem. So we had a couple, we had a page with a couple of anecdotes in which students said, you know, it's actually quite scary, though, the ways in which they've had no debt. But, you know, one said, my my parents got a second job in order to help help, help me afford law school. And, or my partner um, works in a, in a profession that allows them to help me pay for law school. But even those students recognized in those quotes that it was a huge issue for other students. They were all saying, like, this is an issue we need to address, despite the fact that they themselves had no debt. But, you know, then there's so that that's a good thing. But then on, on the other side, there's concerning, you know, some concerning dialogue insofar as, you know, I had one student come up to me and say, you know, we were debating about this. And he said, you know, if we if we were to lower law school tuition, how would we ensure that law school would continue to be competitive? And that just struck me because it, it, is, it just assumed that socioeconomic status was correlative to the to the uh, to the ability and or the um you know, the ability of students to to be competitive for law school or their, their yeah, I mean, it just, I, I thought that it was, it was actually, it makes me even speechless to even think about because it's so, it's so, it's so far off in terms of, of, of understanding why students get into law school and why, why we need people from diverse communities to be in law school. I've made, I've noted, for example, that more, uh, approximately two thirds of students will graduate with actually more than $50,000 in debt. But then it, at, at the, um, at the extreme end, there are students graduating with well over a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Yeah. And meanwhile, there, I, I believe it was about 20% who will graduate with no debt. Actually, I think, uh, yeah, about 15 to 20% that will graduate with no debt, if I remember correctly. Which is interesting. Mm-hmm. So that indicates us that, you know, there's other sources of funding for these folks, um, which is good. And I mean, that's an ideal, an ideal thing that, that people are able to fund their law school education. But it also means that on the flip side, there are 80% of students who are graduating with debt. And that's a huge number that you said that, um, that, uh, uh, I can't remember exactly how much, but that um, a large number will be over 50,000. And one that sticks out to me because I myself am in this category mm-hmm. is I think it was 5.5% that will be graduating with over $140,000 wow. of debt, which is quite a scary number. Like, And honestly, I mean, it's it almost seems back of hand to me because I've been doing this work for so long that I see those numbers as I was, you know, writing this report and think, yeah. That's that sounds about right. But then I have to step back for a second and, and say to myself, no, like that's that really is crazy that we're have we're coming out with basically more than a mortgage on a house to have a legal education. And what else like I we also have to consider what effects that has for the careers that people um that people pursue, you know. There was a number um, that a, a significant number of students felt that they would have trouble paying back their debts and and I think it was close to 20% that felt that um, it was going to take them over 10 years to pay back their debts. And so what does that mean for the types of careers that people pursue? And we had some good quotes in the report, um, some anecdotes from students who were saying exactly that, you know, I have to pursue a career on Bay Street in one of the big seven sisters firms, if you want to call them that, 
because I, I have to, I just, I have to in order to pay back my debts. There's no other way for me, you know? And I think it's, I mean, I, I always come from the perspective of criminal law because I'm heading into a career in criminal law, but you know, I know that there's a lot of people who struggle to stay in criminal law or to go into it in the first place, um, but who are passionate about it and just can't do it. The salaries are just, just lower. That's just a fact. And so mm-hmm. it's really difficult, I think, for people to, um, to square their, uh, their reasons for coming to law school in the first place with how they feel at the end of their degree, just three years later and trying to, trying to reconcile what they wanted and what the, you know, the impetus for their degree was and then not being able to do that just simply because of, of debt. And obviously, uh, the Law Society of Ontario licensing fees also contribute to that. You know, licensing fees get posted to your account just before you finish your final law school classes and they're due in April, which is several months before you start articling. Mm-hmm. You know, that's scary because they're, they're upwards of five or six thousand dollars tacked on top of this debt that you have and the interest that you have to pay on that debt, which has the potential to double the amount that you end up spending in the end, at least in my case. And so, and I think also another issue is the transparency in regards to those fees or the lack thereof. And that students, I know many students who didn't even know that licensing fees were a thing until halfway through their degree when you get an email saying, you know, you owe six thousand dollars to the law society and you say, well, for what? And you, and they can't really explain it to you. So um, I think that there, you know, it's not just a problem with the law schools. It's also a problem with licensing fees and then lawyer fees that are paid annually to the law society. And just that compounding issue of of finances and who, who experiences what kinds of success and who gets to pursue what kinds of careers um, because of their, their financial ability to do so. And I also want to spend just a moment talking about... Um, the impact of that really crippling, and I think you're quite right to call unconscionable debt during the legal education process itself, right? So before you're even being asked to pay the licensing fees or you're entering articling, um, how do you think, um, in your experience, has students' experience while in law school been affected? I know the report has a lot of really interesting and important data on stress and mental health considerations. And I'm also wondering about the increase in the consumerist approach, let's say, to law school, right? So the idea that if, you know, a student is paying a huge amount of money for a degree, then either they are basically, uh, you know, that they have a increased standing to make demands on the institution, including for grades, etc. And there's a lot less, perhaps, I put this to you and I'm interested to hear what you'd have to say, perhaps um, a little bit less of uh, an attitude of law school being a place to do scholarly work and more on it being a transactional sort of stepping stone uh, on the way to getting into Wall Street so that you can then, or Bay Street, that was a slip, but some people going to Wall Street as a way of paying off law school debt. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, and it's quite interesting that you bring that up, I think, because we're at an interesting moment in the profession right now where we're trying to kind of understand what law school is actually for. Right. Um, and there is that debate about whether it should be about academia and about scholarly work or whether it should be about preparing um, students for the profession. And I think there is an argument that, I mean, a certain element of transactional work is, is important because so many students that graduate end up becoming law- practicing lawyers and that there is some value to, for example, the the clinical programs and the intensive programs and the mooting programs and all of those things that we that tuition money goes towards in law school because it's a practical skill that you're learning in order to become a lawyer. But I mean, I straddle the the line between wanting to be an academic and wanting to be a practicing lawyer. And so it's quite interesting for me to think about and reflect on what I've gained from law school and 
whether it's been more about those practical experiences or whether it's about the actual learning of the law. And I think that ultimately, and I think um, many law school deans would agree with me, that the law, the law school is meant to be an academic uh, institution. It's meant to be about learning the law and understanding the law and critiquing the law. And yet some of that does get lost by the fact that, you know, we are spending so much money and what that what the, that money feeds towards. But I don't, I don't know if there's an answer for that about whether it's better one way or the other. But I do think that, it um, you know, the financial contributions that students make at such high numbers every year to the law school mm-hmm. does kind of change the expectations that students have about what they are going to get out of that degree. And I don't know that necessarily there's a correlation between the amount that we spend and what we do get out of it. I think... And that's that's a maybe a controversial statement, but I think mm-hmm. looking at how tuition, um, what levels tuition was at maybe even ten years ago, and what they are now, they've more than doubled in some in some cases. And yet, when I engage with lawyers on Twitter about this issue, they say, "I'm pretty sure that my education back ten years ago in law school was very similar to what it is today. We had a lot of the same programs, and yet now you're paying double the amount that I paid." And I hadn't even really thought about that until lawyers were pointing it out to me, but. They all have illustrious careers now. Mm-hmm. They're all very successful with the having had the education that they had. And so I wonder what the value add is um, over time. We have Osgood at Osgood. I, I very much appreciate the clinical programs that we have and the extent to which the school invests in its students with, with the money that is paid towards tuition. But I don't know that we're getting $30,000 a year worth of um, and, right. and so I, I find it difficult to to justify. Um, and I wonder I wonder if um, maybe some of this, the disillusionment with this would be dispelled if there was more transparency. Right. And that's a big thing for me is that back a couple of years ago, uh, former Dean Sawson did write a, a report about because some students were pushing for a greater understanding of where the money was going. And he did a very detailed report on where the money was going. But I think that needs to be updated continuously and, and made available to students mm-hmm. so that they have... Um, access to an understanding of where this money is going. And then maybe it it doesn't hurt so much to pay $30,000 a year if you can see exactly where. So I think that is part of the equation for sure. Great. So that leads me into the next question was, which would be, what should we do and <laughs> who should do it? Right? right. So there are definitely steps. You've just outlined steps that law schools can take in terms of increasing transparency. I think that's right. absolutely crucial. But there's also the Law Society of Ontario and the province of Ontario. And so right. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on steps that we should, uh, both as professors and students, be asking those two constituencies to make as well. Right. And this is the be all and end all question. It's the big question that I've been considering throughout all this work. And I don't know that I necessarily have a, a punchy answer to it. But my number one thing is that I just, I don't like that the law schools and the Law Society of Ontario and the government seem to, in some ways, pass the buck to one another. It seems like there was a great quote, actually, from one of the students in the in the report that I can't recite now, but that it was about the law society washes their hands of this. The law school says it's not their problem. And it just highlighted that each of the constituents or that each of the institutions thinks that they are the least um the least contributor to this problem or they have reason or they, you know, can come up with a number of justifications as to why they charge the the amount that they charge for licensing fees or why they charge the amount they charge for tuition. But I think it needs to be a conversation amongst all of these stakeholders and, and just actually sitting down and having a good look at where the numbers are coming from. It starts with tuition, but it also actually goes further than that. It goes to um, even the, the price of applications to law school and to the cost of the LSAT. The LSAT costs several 
several hundred dollars, if not close to a thousand. I only applied to four law schools and that cost me a thousand dollars. So before I even get into law school, it's this insane amount of money that you're investing in something that you, you have no guarantee that you're going mm-hmm. to have the career that you want right. and that you're going to be able to pursue the area that you want. And so it's all of those things. It's all of the, everything from the LSAT to tuition to the cost of undergoing on-campus interviews, like this buying a suit and things like that when you're in the middle of law school and then the licensing fees and the lawyer fees every year. And so anyways, this is not to say that I have an answer, but it's just that there needs to be a conversation amongst the stakeholders so that there's buy-in from every part of the profession. Because I don't think that mm-hmm. if we were to simply lower tuition, that the problem would go away necessarily, or that if we were to get rid of licensing fees, that the problem would go away. It's something that's more um, insidious than that. And I think it's more entrenched. And so that's what I would like to start with. And, you know, that's what we'll be doing as the Law Society, Law Student Society mm-hmm. of Ontario, where we, um, I'm setting up a meeting with the treasurer of the Law Society, meeting with a couple of the deans of the law schools to try and find ways in which we can move forward from this. And, um, yeah, just kind of keep students in the loop about it. And I don't also, you know, I don't want this to end after I graduate. Obviously, I'll continue to be invested, but for future students as well, just to have that transparency and have that openness so that there's an ongoing dialogue about the costs and benefits of paying into law school and what you get out of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Heather. I'm sure that we can all expect to hear much more from you yes, in the future on this issue and many, many others. So can you let people know where they can find the report and how to contact you, maybe on Twitter or Yeah, else? absolutely. So the, the report's at um, the Law Student Society of Ontario's website, which is LS, lsso.ca. My email is president at lsso.ca. And also I'm on Twitter at Heather Donkers. Um, as everyone knows, I love Twitter. So, and that's where I engage with a lot of people in the uh, profession. So I'm always happy to chat with people on there as well. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Yeah.